There were shocked reactions today from the baseball world to the shooting death of California Angels outfielder Lyman Bostock. We knew that he had passed, and when we got on the bus, it was just an eerie feeling to go to the ballpark. It was, we had to go there and play this game knowing this guy that we revered had been shot and killed. That's the voice of Carney Lansford, a World Series champion, American League batting champion, and all-star third baseman. He played for 15 seasons in the majors, but as a rookie for the Angels, the Sunday afternoon game he played against the White Sox on September 24, 1978, was unlike any other in his career. It was the first game he and his team would play without their murdered teammate, Lyman Bostock. I hit second and Lyman hit third. I'll be darned if now all of a sudden um, Lyman's not hitting third, but Lansford's hitting third. (sighs) Forgive me. (sighs) So, again, here's another shock, you know? Just give me a minute if you would. In the more than 150-year history of Major League Baseball, only one player has ever been murdered during a season. This is the story of that player, of that murder, and the story of what happened to the man who murdered him. For Fox Sports Audio, I'm Tom Rinaldi, and this is Wesley, the story of the life, career, and death of Lyman Wesley Bostock. Paid ball player. Hope they wait to me as Lyman Bostock of the California Angels. Lyman Bostock, star outfielder, shot to death late last night in Gary, Indiana. Definitely Hall of Fame, no doubt in my mind. And an unmatched spirit has left the Angel Clubhouse. Yes, family and friends kept repeating, he was your son. A 31-year-old man has been charged with the murder of baseball star Lyman Bostock. A classic case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. Excuse me, Leonard, I'm Tom Rinaldi. And no comment. Goodbye. It was just the finality of it. It's like walking into a brick wall. Still today, 40 years later, and it makes me choke up. Whenever people are talking about miscarriages of justice, I'm always like, I got a story for you. Episode 6, An Open and Shut Case. Gene Autry, the owner of the California Angels, said he was shocked by Bostock's murder. The one time singing Cowboy's voice quavered, he paused, and then Autry added of Bostock, quote, we were very happy with him. He was a very, very fine fellow. By all descriptions, the Angels' clubhouse was absolutely silent that Sunday morning as coaches and players arrived, preparing for a chapel service in Chicago's Comiskey Park. Barely 12 hours had passed since Lyman Bostock was shot and killed in nearby Gary, Indiana. This whole ball club was pretty close, and I think it's really took a 
big impact on everybody on the ball club. It's a pretty tightly knit bunch of guys, and uh, you know when something like this happens within a ball club, it, it really shocks everybody. That's Tony Solita, Lyman's teammate, speaking the day after. Scott Osler was a beat writer in Los Angeles when he heard the news. Obviously, shock, stunned. People were stunned. He was starting to get into a kind of a superstar groove, and uh, it was just just a tremendous sense of loss. He had a lot of depth. His teammates really liked him, not because he was a goofball, but because he was a very upbeat, positive, outgoing guy. Go around the community and, uh, in the offseason and hand out bats and balls. Just a quality guy, just shot down literally in the prime of his life. Jim Fergosi, the Angels' first-year manager, tried his best to answer a reporter's questions pre-game. There was a lot of tears. There was uh, a lot of emotion. Uh, this young man was uh, loved. He was deeply cared about. Despite the news that one of its players had been murdered, Major League Baseball made a stunning choice. The league did not postpone Sunday's game, a decision that still bothers many, like the reporter, Scott Osler. If this happened today to any player of any stature, there's no doubt in my mind that there would have been no game that day. It would have been canceled. Even back then, I remember thinking, wow, how can they play a baseball game today? I'm sure that they were just in shock. And again, I, I don't know why they played. I'm sure none of the guys wanted to play. Lyman had invited his teammate, Kenny Landro, to come with him to Gary the night before. Now, a day later, Lyman was gone. The game went on. Not only that, I played both games in right field. And that was his position. That was the turning point where I don't think that would ever happen again, what happened when Lyman got killed and we had to play those games. Just prior to the first pitch, there was an extended moment of silence in Lyman's honor. Beforehand, Fergosi told his rookie third baseman, Carney Lansford, that he would be batting third, taking Lyman's place in the lineup. And I don't know how this happened, and I'll never know. But my first at bat, I hit a home run. And I just remember when I hit it, running to first base and thinking about lines. Somehow, some way, the Angels beat the White Sox 7-3 that Sunday to finish their road trip and then make their own trip back to California. Four days after Lyman's death, they joined more than 800 mourners gathering to say goodbye at the Vermont Square Methodist Church in Los Angeles. We gather here today to celebrate the life of Lyman. It was an appropriate place to say farewell. Vermont Square was the same church Lyman attended with his mother Annie and the one he donated thousands of dollars to during a batting slump earlier that season when he gave his first month's salary with the Angels to charity rather than accepting. After Lyman's death, a baseball fan and former president would also make a donation to the church in Lyman's memory, 
It came from Richard Nixon. You know, I have not laid eyes on that I know. for, what's it, 45 years thereof? Are we right? 45-ish? 44. 44 years, okay. A 26-year-old reporter for the LA Times, who'd been with the paper just two years, was given the assignment to cover the funeral. Skip Bayless had never met Lyman Bostock. Out of the blue, the night before this funeral, the sports editor named Bill Shirley, who was sort of like almost a father figure to me, walked over to my desk and said, hey, would you please attend his funeral tomorrow? I felt overmatched because I felt unqualified to write this because I clearly was a complete stranger to all of the above. And I almost felt like I didn't belong at the funeral because I just didn't qualify. The story Bayless filed still resonates in its detail more than four decades later. Here's a portion of what he wrote on Deadline in 1978. Has anybody here seen my old friend Lyman? Can you tell me where he's gone? As soloist Chester Prescott finished his emotional paraphrase of Is There Anybody Here? which eulogizes the deaths of Lincoln, King, and Kennedy, many in the congregation began to weep for their old friend Lyman. Some 800 has squeezed into Vermont Square Methodist Church in South Los Angeles Thursday morning to pay a funeral tribute to Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr., who will be remembered in this community as yet another leader of importance who met a tragic death. Angel Chaplain John Warhouse dealt with the question, why? Why was a young man so undeserving of death gunned down? Humanly speaking, there is no answer. Inside the sanctuary, with every pew taken and many of the aisles filled, the heat was stifling. Angel's manager, Jim Fragosi, was supposed to speak on behalf of the team, but was overcome with emotion. Instead, he turned to one of his pitchers and asked him to address the mourners. The late Ken Brett stepped up to the pulpit and eulogized his teammate without notes or preparation. Did he feel the hand of the Lord on his shoulder? guiding him along the way? I have to think so. And now Lyman has been tragically taken from all of us. We grieve for his family. We have been deprived of a great player, a great friend. And an unmatched spirit has left the Angel Clubhouse. More than four decades later, Ken's brother George, a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest hitters in baseball history, reflected on his late brother Ken's words and on Lyman's loss. I remember him telling me that he gave the eulogy and we didn't get into all the details. And I said, how was it? He said, it was a tough one. It was really hard because he was my teammate. He was my teammate. And you do a funeral during the season. I mean, that's got to be the hardest thing you ever do to a teammate, don't you think? Here is just one of the things that Kenny said about Lyman. 
When he found the road to his success, his first thoughts were to help the people who had helped him. We learned from that. Wow. We are all better people for having known Lyman and having him touch our lives. You're 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 putting tears in my eyes, man. I'm telling you. Oh my God, my brother said it all. It's that's pretty impressive for him to come up with on the spur of the moment. <laughs> In his story, Bayless described the family there to mourn for Lyman. Bostock's mother, Annie, in a purple dress, and wife, Euveen, in a white dress, were escorted to the beat of onward Christian soldiers. They were followed by Lyman Bostock Sr., Bostock's four brothers, nine uncles, six aunts, and many other relatives who jammed the right side of the sanctuary. Euveen Bostock showed little emotion as she sat through a service designed especially for her husband. With Lyman's body in a closed casket, Euveen, now his widow, sat in the front of the church in a white dress beside Lyman's mother, Annie. They were flowing out of the church. The procession to the cemetery was like blocks and blocks. I was just in awe. His mom had a really hard time with that, and I saw what it was doing to her. She never left that moment. You know, it it was devastating to the point that it was almost crippling at times because emotionally, I mean, he was her world. So I knew I just had to not be stuck in that place. Bayless ended his column focused on Lyman's mother, Annie. As cameramen jockeyed for position on the sanctuary steps, the family filled five gray limousines at the head of the procession. Policemen stopped traffic at every light on the drive to the cemetery about five miles. As Annie Bostock was led away from the grave, she said over and over, he was my son. Yes, family and friends kept repeating, he was your son. That's it. Oh. oh, I thought there was more, but I do like the end of that. Why? I remember I I went in the I drove in the procession just to see how it would feel at the gravesite, and that was the line that stuck in my psyche that they just kept saying, "Yes, he was your son," and it was a beautiful way to to end the day because they always say it's so hard for parents to lose their children uh, before they're gone. While Lyman's family, friends, team, and those across baseball mourned in California, back in Indiana, police and prosecutors had no doubt about who'd killed him. A 31-year-old man has been charged in Crown Point, Indiana with the weekend murder of baseball star Lyman Bostock. In the early hours of Saturday, September 24th, police had gone to a three-story brick apartment building on Jackson Street in Gary, just blocks away from the intersection where Lyman Bostock had been shot. There, they found Leonard Smith, 
a 31-year-old unemployed steelworker who'd been arrested multiple times before. His estranged wife, Barbara, who'd been riding in the car next to Lyman at the time of the shooting, told police, Leonard was the man who fired the shotgun blast. The intended victim of the attack was Barbara Smith, and that Mr. Bostock just happened to get between her and uh, her assailant. A uh, uh, classic case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jack Crawford was the Lake County prosecutor at the time who would handle the case. It appeared right from the onset that this was a domestic violence killing. At least the intent of Mr. Smith was to kill his estranged wife, not Lyman Bostock. This is so sad. He didn't even know who Lyman Bostock was. Never heard the name, didn't follow baseball, and had no idea. Barbara Smith had sought a protective order against her husband and filed for divorce just four days before the shooting. In Crawford's mind, the evidence was overwhelming and irrefutable. Barbara saw him point the gun. Barbara ducked, and Lyman didn't. And he fired one round, but this is a shotgun, one round through the opera window of Tom Turner's Buick, and it struck Lyman Bostock in the head. So those are the facts, pretty simple. Uh, She quickly told police, it's my ex-husband, or my soon-to-be ex-husband, Leonard, that did this, and police tracked him down at his apartment. Leonard said something to the effect like, it's all about my bitch wife, something. It's all about that bitch. Uh, That's about all he said. So police knew it was a domestic case. And he basically confessed. That shuffling sound is Leonard Smith being taken out of a police car and led into his arraignment, with local and national media there to record it. At his preliminary hearing in Lake County Criminal Court, Smith was held without bail and charged with the murder of Lyman Bostock. He was facing up to 60 years if convicted. His mother, Mildred, hired a defense attorney named Nick Theros, well-known to prosecutor Jack Crawford and many others in Indiana. I was concerned because he has a reputation for being the best. And I thought to myself, if anybody can pull the rabbit out of the hat here and obtain an acquittal, it'll be Nick Theros. He won the cases that couldn't be won. He commanded the courtroom, he yelled and shouted. He would just be theatrical, prancing around the courtroom, uh, vicious on cross-examination would destroy a witness on a cross-exam. And uh, that was his style, just a comparison, but very similar to Johnny Cochran, for those who remember the OJ case. Theros would enter a plea of not guilty on Smith's behalf. How could he convince a jury of that? What would his defense be? The attorney summed up his approach to the case in an interview we did back in 2008. It's not a defense of who done it. As we know, everybody knew that Leonard did it. The only uh, option that I recognized at the time was to file a defense of insanity. I thought to myself, yeah, Nick's really good. He's the best. But he can't win. On these facts, this is a closed, open and shut case. He can't win. 
I thought to myself, well, this is the one case he'll never be able to pull out of the hat. After undergoing an evaluation by the state, Smith was judged competent to stand trial by court-appointed psychiatrists. Nearly 10 months after Lyman's death, on July 10, 1979, Smith's murder trial began. While the court was crowded with friends and family from Gary, Yuvine did not make the trip to be there. No, no desire to. Why not? Uh, I thought it would be too hard emotionally, for one, and there was enough family there to uh, witness it and represent. I think that just would have been too much. Seeing the person who murdered your husband. Yeah. And just hearing the testimony and having to relive what happened over and over again. Defense attorney Nick Theros died in 2010. But his son, Mark, now an attorney himself, was in high school at the time of the trial and was there, eager to watch his father's work in defending Leonard Smith. If anybody was in serious trouble, they were calling Nick. The way I describe him, is he was very smart and he was very street smart. So me as a kid, I got away with nothing. From where I sat in the courtroom, I was looking at the back of Leonard. He was uh, well-behaved, well-demeanored, you know, uh, there were no outbursts or anything of that sort. Lyman's uncle, Tom Turner, who was driving the car that night, testified as did his goddaughter, Joan Hawkins, a passenger in the car. Then, Barbara Smith, Leonard's estranged wife, took the stand. I remember her saying, oh, there's my stupid husband, Leonard, or words to that effect. You know, and then boom, you know, the shotgun went off. To Mark, Barbara's testimony left a distinct impression with the jury, beyond her description of what happened that night. That all ties into the uh, defense. Because, I mean, you know, if you want to say it, she was a bitch. Why do you use that word? She married this man and then chose to uh, do things outside the box. Uh, and whether or not this was simply a friendly uh, encounter and Lyman happened to be there or the appearance that she was seeking some intimacy with him that evening, you know, I don't know. I mean, obviously that's what Leonard Smith perceived. Even though there was no romantic relationship at all between Lyman Bostock and Barbara Smith, prosecutor Jack Crawford had seen the technique before. The defense goes after the spouse, usually the female, as the real cause of the whole incident. Not the defendant who fired his shotgun into the car, If she had been a better wife, a kinder, more caring, more considerate woman, this would not have happened. And pretty soon, you realize she's on trial, not Leonard Smith. Smith himself took the stand, testifying on his own behalf, telling the jury he believed the man riding next to Barbara in the backseat of Tom Turner's Buick was having an affair with his wife, and that belief drove him insane with jealousy. 
That was the message Nick Theros wanted Smith to get across on the stand. I figured that if I could convince a jury, or if the evidence showed that the situation that he was in it drove him to that point, where at the time that he fired this shot, he could not appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or could conform his conduct to accepted standards, which was the definition of insanity at that time, that perhaps the jury uh, would be sympathetic to it. Jack Crawford cross-examined Smith next. He came across this as somebody who was angry at his soon-to-be ex-wife and who was not sympathetic, who didn't care that he had killed Lyman Bostock. I think he even testified he didn't know who Lyman Bostock was. Uh, and, and just came across as a pathological killer. That's what I thought, and I thought I brought that out. On July 13th, the jury of nine men and three women told Judge James Kimbrough they could not reach a decision. After roughly 10 hours of deliberations, they were deadlocked. The judge declared a mistrial. Prosecutor Jack Crawford decided immediately to seek a new trial. We found out later that it was either 10 to 2 or 11 to 1 for guilty of murder. So it was that close. We found that out. That, that's just through anecdotal comments. Obviously, the verdict had tilted toward guilty. Retrial. Immediately, Your Honor, we request a new trial date for the retrial. And the judge gave us one right away. All rise. The second trial began in mid-November. And while Nick Theros again used an insanity defense, he made two important changes to his case. The first, he did not have Leonard Smith take the stand. The second was the use of a psychologist named Frank Bronio, who had been one of Theros's college professors. Jack Crawford was immediately struck by the new expert witness. He had a mannerism that was very credible, and he really got to know his patient, if you will, or client. And he, he was able to bring out sympathy for Mr. Smith that Mr. Smith couldn't bring out for himself. Leonard was a person who had a difficult childhood, never accomplished too much, and just felt intimidated. His wife was very pretty. He felt intimidated by his wife. When Leonard was on probation for something fairly minor, he found out that his probation officer purportedly was having an affair with his wife. And Dr. Brogno said to the jury, ladies and gentlemen, it drove Leonard crazy. It just made him crazy for a lot of different reasons. Dr. Brogno was able to paint a picture for the jury that I felt was not true, but at the same time, I think got the sympathies of the jury going, saying, well, maybe she did make him crazy and maybe he just couldn't control himself. The second trial lasted less than a week. In his closing statement, Nick Theros made his case to the jury in the plainest terms. Last thing I tell every jury is that expect you to return a verdict of not guilty. I couldn't get Leonard to tell his story the second time, so I had Dr. Bonio tell Leonard's story, and he did it quite well. And he told the jury the same thing that Leonard would have, but this is coming now from, my, from Dr. Bonio instead of Leonard. 
As for Jack Crawford, in both trials, one of his chief frustrations was his opinion that the law limited him from having the jury understand who Lyman Bostock was and what the world had lost. While it was heartbreaking, it wasn't germane to Smith's guilt or innocence. That's, under the law, the character of the victim is not relevant. You can't bring that evidence out because it's not relevant to just because he was a very good person doesn't make him a better victim. Obviously, you think everybody would know who Lyman Bostock was. He was the top hitter in the league. And, and I don't think the jury knew that. I'm not sure they cared. All the good things he had done, donated his salary back. As I recall, that did not come into evidence. We tried and the judge ruled, you cannot go there. You can't bring out that he's uh, the most benevolent person ever to play baseball by giving the money to charity because that doesn't relate to the true facts of the case. And so the jury really didn't know Lyman very well. But generally I'd say the jury was in the dark about the true person that Lyman Bostock was. On November 16, 1979, the case was handed over to the jury. Ten men and two women would decide Leonard Smith's fate. They deliberated for a little more than five hours and then let Judge Kimbrough know they'd reached a verdict. All were summoned back into the courtroom to hear the judgment read aloud. The judge says to the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I understand you've reached a verdict. And the foreperson, yes, we have, Your Honor. The court hereby renders the verdict on count one, murder. We, the jury, find the defendant not responsible by reason of insanity. Or, as Crawford would say, 14 years ago. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. More than four decades after the case, Crawford's feelings remain deep and raw, especially when it comes to Lyman's uncle, Tom Turner, and his hurt, for the entire Bostock family. I remember calling him and talking to him on the phone that evening. I was heartbroken and I, I thought he was crying. Uh, I probably was crying too. Still today, 40 years later, and it makes me choke up to tell the family, the killer of, of your nephew, somebody that you admired so much for his accomplishments. The killer is probably going to go free soon. Even now, Jack, that emotion, why? It's just the, I, I think, it's like a, a, a life story. It's the ironies and the uncertainties, the unfairness of life played its uh, self out in this case. All the good that Lyman could have done, and, and he would have done good. This is a guy that donates a, a month's salary to charity. All the good he would have done at a time when, when racial feelings were not good. He epitomized how athletes should be, how they should be. And just the, the waste of it all. The fact that this life is taken out of our future and there, it wouldn't be there again still chokes me out. 
Leonard Smith didn't go free. Instead, he was committed to Logansport State Hospital in Indiana for a period of psychiatric evaluation. Doctors there were charged with determining whether Smith should stay there permanently. Smith wouldn't be there very long at all, as Tom Turner predicted. I didn't believe that he was insane. I never have, and I never will, and I still today don't believe that he was insane. On the next episode of Wesley, some in Lyman's family consider their own kind of justice. You can just sense that this is the only way we can make things right, because this was a travesty should have never happened. There were persons who were really looking to do harm to this gentleman. That and an unlikely encounter with a man who killed Lyman. Excuse me. Leonard? I'm Tom Rinaldi. I don't want to talk to you. I have no comment. Goodbye. That's next time on Wesley. Wesley is produced for Fox Sports Audio in conjunction with Blue Duck Media. It's reported and hosted by me, Tom Rinaldi. Executive producers are Eric Shanks, Charlie Dixon, and me for Fox Sports. Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin for Blue Duck Media. Sound mixing and original scoring from Steve Porter and Porterhouse Media. Editing and sound design by Mike Goldstein. Audio field recording from Alan Chow. Jen Roman is our producer and production manager. Script consulting and research from David Sabino. Additional production and research from Quincy Tucker. Production support from Jonathan Berger, Matt Engelberg, Michael Vader, and Ben Redman. Special thanks to Yuveen Whistler and her family, the Lyman Bostock family, the incomparable Willie Weinbaum, Major League Baseball, and ESPN. <laughs>